and welcome to the Guarantee Podcast. The Guarantee Podcast is an initiative of Campus Gegenwart, the Centre for the Contemporary at the University of Music and the Performing Arts in Stuttgart. Each episode collects ideas, thoughts and reflections on our current moment, looking at music, design and the performing and visual arts through an interdisciplinary lens. My name is Jennifer Walsh. I'm Professor of Experimental Performance and help direct Campus Gegenwart. This episode, I'll be talking with Jonathan Burroughs, Paula Sheshonka and Olia Lialina about the challenges of making art, teaching and learning during the pandemic. My first guest is Jonathan Burroughs. Jonathan is one of the leading contemporary choreographers, particularly known for his duo work with composer Matteo Fargion. Jonathan is also Associate Professor at the Centre for Dance Research, Coventry University. Hi, Jonathan. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. And how are you? I'm fine. Where are you now? What, what type of lockdown or tier restrictions are you under there? Well, in England at the moment, it's gone back to um, a full lockdown, with, except that the schools are still um, running. So my children, for instance, are still at school. Um, but I'm working from home, which means that um, touring um, that I had in this period of time was postponed and I'm doing a certain amount of online workshop teaching. So how how do you move forward with the projects that you're engaged in at the moment? Um, given that, you know, your background is as a dancer, you're a choreographer, um, that seems to be like one major challenge. And then also your your work is so collaborative. Like, how do you keep things taken over at the moment? Well, um, a, a, an odd side effect of the the kind of stopping of of performances and the closing of theatres was that at a certain point towards the end of the summer when um, there was a kind of um, there was a sense of hope that that that, that things uh, might open up again then um, uh, my colleague Matteo Fargin and I actually began to do a small amount of touring again we went twice to Germany uh, and we started to receive um a surprising number of, of of new invitations to perform and i think it was a combination of two factors um that drew people to what we were doing the first um is that there's a particular um, uh, um uh, uh, relationship to audience that we um have um practiced um within our performances which i think i think touched um a, a nerve at a moment when people were missing the idea of performance and then um also the performances that we make um uh, can take place in non-theater spaces we're often performing in halls or or, or bars or um galleries uh, uh, and they can take place for um, small numbers of people. So we've we've often in the past done setups with um, a curve of twenty chairs sitting very close to us, and um, and we ha- use very minimal 
technical equipment, um, we have a kind of strange um, um, principle that we, we try not to use more than five theater lamps um, at any given time. And um, now it looks ecological, but in a way it was just because we don't really like sitting in theaters all day, um, slowly um, struggling to focus lamps in a way that makes a, a space look aesthetically attractive. So we came up with a way of working that seems to suit us better, which is to um, minimize all of that. And so of, co of course, it, in, a, in a kind of semi-lockdown situation, that, that suits the venues very well. But it was, the, the, the odd thing was that when we went back to Germany in September, um, I walked into a theater and having spent a lifetime critiquing the idea of theater, critiquing the, the building, critiquing the, 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 the political histories in those buildings, critiquing the relationship to the audience, um, uh, it, it, it felt like coming home. And for a very brief moment, I th uh, um, both Matteo and I had this, the, the, uh, we, we, we were privileged to have access to the realization that a, th that a theater is a very functioning space. It's very well designed to do what it does. And the, the public who came in to the performances spoke uh, of, of a similar kind of sudden <laughs> revelation. Um, and that was touching in a way. I mean, I don't want to dismiss the difficulties of the pandemic, not least for self-employed artists who've lost a lot of money and livelihoods. Um, but there have been these, there's, the, the, it has offered a, you know, the art machines stopped, the hierarchies temporarily di dissolved, at least from view, if not in actuality. And there seemed to be a, a possibility to reflect upon why it is we do what we do. That was a long answer to a short question. It was a fantastic answer. I'm, I'm uh, very, several aspects of what you said really strike me. Uh, the first one is one of the things you, you said early in your answer, that in that you said that you felt like some of the invitations that were being extended to you uh, were, were perhaps to do with the fact that you've developed this way of walking, this way of working in which the relationships with the audience is really important. And that's something that I, I'm very curious about how it's going to change art in general over the next years, because it, it sort of feels like we're so desperate for a sense of community, of assembly, of presence, of people, that though, that people will be drawn to these sort of performances very naturally. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. Um, I mean, just to give some context of what I mean about the way that my colleague Matteo Fajan and I work is that um, we borrowed a principle which came from the theatre director, performer, thinker, Jan Ritzma, um, that the, 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 the premise was that, that everybody is under the same roof. Um, so this doesn't just mean a dissolving of the fourth wall of the theatre, um, but it's something 
more delicate than that, that, um, um, that two, two things that we think about a lot. I mean, the first is that we are often the audience. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of dance and, and performance before I'm a maker, before I'm an artist. I, I'm a fan and I stay a fan. Um, I, th I think that's really essential. So I, I'm not somebody different. And, and um, it, it, that experience tells me that, that it's, very, it's very important that everybody under that same roof has a respect that, that we all share a similar in intelligence and possibility to, to, um, to, to, to have um, intelligent perspective about what's going on in the room of the theatre. But the other thing is that um, um, the, the direction that a performance might take is very strongly informed by how the audience sits. So Matei and I 20 years ago came up with a principle which was how the audience sits, how the audience sit is how we should sit, which, which means um, if an audience is very still and quiet, then, that, then it's respectful within the conversation we're having. Um, us waving our arms, them um, reflecting, meditating, embodying, drifting off, being bored, um, laughing, um, then, um, then that, that we stay calm. But if, if sometimes you have an audience which, which is um, very animated, and then that's nice too, because then you can, you can join in that animation. You can allow things to go off in directions that they wouldn't have gone off in, but you can't force it. I mean, you can force it, but it's not nearly as rich a, 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 an atmosphere somehow. So it, there's a kind of sensitive, sensitivity of listening to, uh, so that even if the public is sitting still, there's a great amount of activity going on. It's, it's very interesting because for me, there's a parallel between what you're talking about and free improvisation. And also, um, uh, though it might seem off topic, uh, stand-up comedy, where monitoring the room and being aware of what's happening in the room and that when you know, when um, I think of stand-up nights I've been at where somebody makes a joke early in the night and it falls flat. And so somebody make, tries to make the same joke, you know, 20 minutes later as if to try and prop the idea up. And then an hour later, somebody else tries to improve on it. And, and I remember seeing this happen and everybody just failed with the same joke. And the, the last person who tried it said, it was in the room, it was in the room. And, and I, I've thought about that a lot over the last months because we don't have that communal space. And, and I'm curious, have you done any Zoom performances or have you sort of avoided the live stream territory? Because when you say to me, we're trying to sit how the audience sits, and I know that's in the directions for both sitting duet, you know, you sit how the audience sits. Um, I, I think about the fact that when we're not in the same room, it's hard to even know how we're sitting because you can't even see what's you know, what's happening from people from the waist down. Yeah, we got invited uh, more than once to 
perform live on Zoom. And in each instance, we, we decided to share a, an already made film. Um, but that, that was for two reasons. I mean, the, the first one was that um, it seemed very early on a bit exhausting the amount of stuff was that, that was being proposed as an alternative to live performance. Um, so, it, yeah, I, I'm not knocking and I saw some interesting things, but um, anyway, there was a, there was a sense, well, it, you know, the enough is enough. We can we can slow this thing down a bit. We don't have to go on being hyper productive. But um, the other thing was that um, there is a there there are there is a reading of each other, which requ which requires us to be in the same room. Uh, so I mean I don't know about you, but um, I was I had two workshops last week, and sometimes the format of Zoom offered a calmness of conversation, which I thought was really refreshing. And at other times it became really hard to read each other. So, um, you know, maybe that's useful because there's, there's all sorts of cliches about, um, you know, the marvels of in the moment live performance, but it's not that often that you get to uh, really, uh, understand it more deeply or have a have a have a, a an opportunity or reason to understand it more deeply why it is important there's two things that you've mentioned that are, strike me a lot and they're they're things that have come up in conversations with other artists over the last eight months one is you've mentioned the art machine and being hyper productive and having a moment um for more reflection and the other thing you've mentioned is um, being able to read people, just having a sense of what's happening with, with people in the room. And, and I'm just wondering, do having sort of having had a have, having had a chance to sort of see those three things through a different lens, do you think they will affect the way that you work moving forward over the next few years? Yeah, I mean, my fear is that that will wear off and things will just go on as they were before um I th you know I, I have the fantasy that i have a slightly i might come out of this with a um a, a slightly calmer perspective and a slightly deeper understanding what matters and why it matters um but you know the machine of of art production is is furious and you know uh, when you're caught between needing to continue to earn a living and the fact that um, maintaining visibility for anybody at any level of their career now is extremely difficult because there are so many artists that social media is this waterfall of um, demand for your attention so that even if you work um, three years on a, on a project um, it, you know, it, it may pop up on social media for a few days, but then it's washed away. Um, I think in the past that wasn't always the case. It was more often the case before that, um, that maybe something happened that not many people saw, but word spread round and then it would come back. And then there was, so, you know, um, I, 
I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know what will happen, but um, maybe trying to find, maybe trying to find perspective on 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 all of that is is useful, even if it's for a brief moment. I I agree very strongly because I think as you talk about this. Um, you know, this massive, I felt like there was a flood once we hit March and April of live streams and, and online performances, almost as if the art machine was trying to figure out what to do, you know, and how to function. And there were some fantastic things that came out of that time, but there was a lot of material I never saw because at the end of a long day of being on Zoom or or having to look at a screen, the last thing I wanted to do was look at another screen. Um, but uh, I, I'm I, I'm curious how that will affect us, you, you know, moving forward. So I suppose my last question is, you know, what advice would you give young artists who are sort of are sort of beginning to work with their bodies? Because what I find is quite interesting is there's a lot of students and a lot of um, young artists, whether from a music background or a visual art background or a film or even a dance background, and they're very very interested in in embodiment, the body on stage. And I know the body is a problematic term that which covers a lot of different types of bodies. And I feel those students, it's quite difficult for them because at the moment, um, how do they how do they work? How do they do physical work when they can't touch other people or they're stuck on Zoom? So sort of any any advice for young artists beginning to make work, ways to move forward? Um. Well, the obvious thing that that occurs to me is that um, there is still this mythology around performance and particularly around embodiment within performance and the presence of the performer, which um, comes back always to to the to this notion of authenticity to something that is more real, um, to ways of working which are more real than other ways of working, or more valid, or more felt, or more expressed, um, or able to, 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 um, to share their emotion or their, or their narrative. And I think sometimes this, um authenticity or realness or feltness is absolutely there um but it 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 seems to me not just from my own experience but from very different kinds of work that i um experience and love that there's no one way to find it and that that sometimes letting go um, that desire for authenticity is is really liberating um, and really fruitful um, and so in particular um, oh i i was very lucky uh, <laughs> or, or, may, or maybe not uh, to um to take a workshop with Merce Cunningham in 1980. He, his company came to the Edinburgh Festival, um, gave these remarkable um, performances of a version of, of, of 
his events where there were a chance to write cut-ups of various pieces. I think the performances were two hours long. Um, John Cage was present and um, my memory was that Cage was, um, one of the tasks he'd set himself was to walk under the rostrum where the audience was sitting and um, randomly hammer um, with a, an actual hammer <laughs> under the seat of, of different people. Um, but anyway, uh, Must Cunningham, for some reason, but must have been part of the contract with the Edinburgh Festival, he was required to teach a workshop, which was not something that he did. He taught class at his studios um, for his company. Um, and it was either the worst workshop I ever did or it was the best, but he, wa he, he walked in and he said, um, right, I'd like to make six things. And then he just sat down and then we spent uh, an hour making six things. Then he said, right, I'd like you to put them in the right order. And then we spent an hour putting them in the right order. Then he watched them one by one. And then he said, thank you so much for your work. And then he left. Um, but the thing was, it took me years and years to, to realize that he gave permission to, to, to decide to work and then to make something and then to make another thing rather than to, um, to, to rather than to search for something that you think you know what it might be or what it should offer. Um, I mean, the Cunningham's work as with cages was very was very specific. And I, I, I'm not talking about making modernism in the 21st century. But um, one of my favorite artists is the Norwegian choreographer Meta Edvardsen. Um, remarkably, she makes choreography where she almost never moves, but she has an extraordinary ability to, uh, to, to raise awareness of, of um, space and relation and to shift things using um, language and very simple theatrical techniques. And she talks about that, that her process of working is, is, um, is, is about the dust that accumulates through the process of working. And for me, the dust that accumulates are the six things that Merce Cunningham asked us to find. You reach for whatever's at hand and you work with it till it tells you what it could be. If it doesn't work, you throw it away and you start again. That's my long-winded advice. I think that that is completely fantastic advice. And it um, reminds me during the pandemic, I took a class online that was a Merce Cunningham dancer. And she said, Merce used to say, the only way to do it is to do it. And, and so I think uh, your description of his workshop seems completely in line with that statement that you just simply do it. You just simply make and, and see, what, see what, dust, what dust accumulates as you're making. Thanks so much, Jonathan, for talking to me. Uh, very inspiring and um, 
and I think for a lot of people that that feeling you described of entering a theater or a performance space and how it's changed by the pandemic they've either witnessed it themselves if they've been privileged enough to have some some shows or that's ahead of them so that's also something I think very hopeful uh to know that that's ahead of us even when we're stuck here in in, in a hardcore lockdown and the and the nights the nights are drawing in and the days are getting shorter. So thanks so much for, for giving us that image. All right, thanks for thanks for asking me. I've enjoyed the conversation. Oh, oh, oh. No, no, no. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. No, no, no. Attack. Symptoms include muscle attack, weakness, tremor, no. nausea, vomiting, faintness, attack. dizziness, chest pain, redness, swelling and tenderness, blisters and swollen glands, attack. muscle aches. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. That was an excerpt from Jonathan Burroughs and Matteo Fargion's The Cow Piece, performed at Styrisher Herbst in 2010. Learning to develop dance work is one unique physical challenge of the pandemic. Learning to speak clearly while wearing a mask is another. So I was very happy to speak with Paula Sheshonka. Paula is a student on the MA in Mediensprechen at the HMDK and so had some interesting thoughts on how we are using our voices at the moment. Hi Paula, it's very nice to talk to you today. Hey, thanks for having me. So I just want to check in with you about what your experiences of the current moment are. You're a student at the Hochschule, you know, you finished your degree um, earlier this year and then you start your master's degree now. How has it been being a student over the last few months? Um, interesting, I would say. Um, in the, I think the first lockdown was way more challenging than it is now. Um, like in March when we just just the holidays kept going on forever and ever and we were supposed to be preparing for our final exams um, and at this point I feel like we've kind of all arrived in this in this mode of working like there's a lot of digital um, lessons and we all kind of know how to deal with it and we've also kind of accepted it for what it has to be um, I think the thing that I'm missing the most is like the community of it all, just meeting people in in a setting that's not organized. That's not like, oh, I'm going to meet this one person today for a coffee and we'll have a nice chat. But to just randomly walk into people in class or in the cafeteria and just not having to worry about how close you are standing to someone. Um, so the community aspect is missing. Um, and of course, we didn't really have a break and a lot of stage things that would usually be happening aren't happening now. So we're all kind of looking for alternatives for that. And how does it, because it's very interesting. I mean, I'm sitting watching you on Zoom and you've got a, 
very nice microphone and a proper pop screen and a nice pair of headphones, uh, uh, which is the sort of thing that I expect somebody who is is training professionally uh, to 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 do work with the voice. But how has this sort of affected the way that you think about your future and 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 how you might work? Um. Well, first, in, in the beginning, something was just missing, and I, I was just very sad about that for a while. Um, and now I'm starting to, I think, think of alternatives, think of formats where you have like a small audience or where you're um, connecting sort of media and also live speaking. Um, and also... Um, one thing that's kind of been great for me has been I've had to kind of think about what I want to do uh, as an artist or in life in general, as opposed to thinking about like what is what is good for where I'm at at uni right now and what like what are my friends doing? What is everyone else doing? Um, so the kind of loneliness, loneliness that came with the lockdown has been a little bit beneficial in that sense. Um, Can you give us an example of what you're talking about? Well, I think um, I used to kind of wait for projects to come along and I've got a bunch of very lovely creative friends who would go, hey, Paula, I'm doing this project. Can you come along? And I would be like, yeah, sure. I don't know what it's about, but it sounds fun. Um, and that has become less. And so I've had to kind of get busy. So I got into a bunch of seminars at the Abika now I'm learning about like sound design and how to make noises. And I'm thinking about my final master's exam and trying to combine it with stage stuff, but also media stuff. Um, and I'm very free in thinking about that because I don't have anyone I can look to, to kind of be like, oh, what has this person done in that situation? Because the situation is just new. So it, it seems like it's uncharted territory and that's, yes, that's a yeah. positive in that way. Yeah, oh, that's really great. I'm really glad to hear that. <laughs> uh, have you found that because so much stuff now is happening over Zoom and so much relies on the type of microphones that people have or they're having to communicate over Zoom, which sometimes distorts the voice and things like that. Do you find yourself as a professional a professional voice, uh, a sprecher, do you find, find yourself um, a, a sort of criticizing or analyzing what happens in a, in a, in a detailed way? Um, I think not so much because you only hear fractions of people's voices. I think I find myself criticizing the way that people speak more when I actually see them uh, than I would via Zoom because I'm like, I can't really tell anything. And also I've, I've found that in the Zoom meetings, always the ones of us who have like showy offy microphones are always also the ones with the most microphone troubles because we forget to switch on our little uh, our uh, stations and we just yeah I just keep unplugging my microphone because I'm scared that people will hear me when I'm making a cup of tea and then I forget switching it back on so I feel like the ones of us who are quote-unquote professionals are the ones who have the most trouble with that and do you do you I mean with with the whole Sprechkunst department, clearly we're in a lockdown right now, but are you doing your, are your lessons taking place online or are some of them face-to-face -face or how is it working? Um, most of our practical lessons are actually still face-to-face. -face. 
um, because we have a lot of solo lessons just with our teachers. Um, so at the moment, I still go to the studio of the Sprechkunst department like twice or three times a week to, to record stuff with a teacher. The purely theoretical seminars like literature and um, that kind of thing, they are all via Zoom. And then like the physical stuff has now been reduced to very small groups. So we can still do that in the Hochschule as well. Mm -hmm. So as opposed to the first lockdown where we were all just on Zoom or on the phone, um, mm -hmm. we're now very live. And do you find, as I know in some of the classes that I've taught, the students have felt nervous about speaking or singing loudly, you know, even with masks, because, you know, the students were sort of concerned, was this safe? Do you have any sort of tips for people moving forward, like how to use their voice in, in a way which feels safe, but they can still be heard clearly? I think, I think usually in those situations where you have, worried that you might be endangering someone else um i think the most important thing is to kind of communicate that and be like hey are you are you comfortable if i take off my mask are you comfortable if i stand over here are you you know you always have to kind of make sure everyone feels okay and i feel like when that's a given then there's not really any need to worry um because then you've kind of agreed on that um also, I'm, I, don't think, I don't think how loud you speak really affects how many viruses you're putting in the air. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a virologist, but um, yeah, I think it's all kind of about communicating rather than trying to stop that one tiny bit of virus possibly getting into the air. And do you have any final tips for, um, given that we're all having to speak a little bit louder than we would normally speak, because we're wearing masks a lot of the time and we can't get information from people's lips. So even that sort of partial lip reading that people will do at times, if they can't quite understand what people are saying, we got any tips for being able to speak a little bit louder than normal for, for all those people out there shouting their grocery orders from behind a mask? <laughs> um, two things, I think. Um, for me, one thing is to kind of don't forget your body when you're speaking. Like you, you still have feet, you still have a butt uh, and all of those parts. Uh, and we tend to focus very much on what our mouth is doing. And sometimes when we do that, gibberish comes out. And also we can't really do that now because of the masks. So one thing is to kind of stay in your body, take a breath. And which kind of leads me to the second thing, which is take your time. If you feel like somebody doesn't understand, you just slow down a little bit. Give yourself a moment to think about what you're going to say. Give the other person a moment to hear what you're saying. I think that's beautiful advice to say to people, don't forget that you have a body. Because at the moment, it's so much focus is on, you know, is on the mouth and the face and the mask. And it's important to remember that the sound is made by the rest of you also, not just <laughs> yeah. the part that's been covered up. So... <laughs> Thanks very much, Paolo, for talking to me today. And I am very excited to see what this uncharted territory will bring to your, your final performance for the, for the Masters at the end of all this. Thanks very much. Thank you. <laughs> As we all face the challenges of living, learning and teaching online, I was particularly interested to talk to someone who I consider an expert on the web, Olia Lialina. 
Born in Moscow, but now living in Stuttgart, Olia is a professor of new media at the Mertz Academy in Stuttgart and is considered one of the first and most important artists to work with and on the internet. Hi, Olia. How are you doing today? Hi, Jenny. So nice to meet you here. Well, very, very nice to meet you here. Um, so I suppose we can just start where now it's the beginning of November. Um, I'm in London where we're about to head into a big lockdown. You're in Stuttgart where you're already in a big lockdown. Do you want to just say a little bit about how things are going, how you're doing there? Oh, we are online again. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, it looked like I remember the end of the last semester, Uh and this feeling, yeah, now it's over and uh, there will be summer break and then we all will come to school again <laughs> and things will be um, as before. But somehow already in the end of September, it became clear that uh, uh, it will not be the same again. And uh, uh, yeah, had to rethink, re rethink my plans uh, and um, adjust for online teaching, but uh, I love to be online, as you can imagine. <laughs> I have to admit that back when everything started changing in March, uh, you were one of the people that I thought about because I thought, you know, Olia loves being online. It's your environment. It's been your environment for a long time. So how has this felt that all of a sudden everything really did go online over the last months? Yeah, there were very different um, um, situations and also like emotions, one can say. Sometimes it uh, um, felt like it's again 1996, <laughs> like everybody is uh, going online. Or for some people, maybe it would be like it's again 2006 that people discover YouTube <laughs> or um, social networks. Some, somehow, also, if you think about uh, mass media, uh, was also very strange uh, to, to realize that uh, um, for newspapers, uh, Somehow, though they all are already online for a long time, still to imagine that somebody is doing art online <laughs> can be only connected to the extreme situation. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like it's because of this, uh, what Olia does, it makes sense because uh, there is a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, so um, many things like uh, I realized suddenly that... Uh, um, in some or in many people's mind, the World Wide Web and the Internet in general, um, it's um, like, like uh, again, in the beginning stage, um, though it's here already for so long time. It's interesting that you say it's like being back in 1996 again or 2006 again, <laughs> and that it's sort of beginning all over again because it feels like for a lot of people they're having to completely rethink what their relationship you know to it is like like in a in a in a, in a very in a, in a very unprecedented way yeah some um, how of course uh, a lot of people who would maybe want to spend um, 
less time online, suddenly had to spend more. But at the same time, I should say it's about the online is not just one homogeneous uh, um, space, of course. And uh, one can say that, let's say, um, I'm sure there are many who are 24-7 on Instagram, <laughs> but then they um, maybe uh, had to spend uh, two of these 24 hours in Zoom, <laughs> and then it looked like uh, going online because <laughs> you had to make some, you have to move somewhere else. But uh, yeah. so this, I think also <clears throat> there is... Um, we can't just talk about one internet or one being online or not. There are so many um, different situations, and uh, the smallest uh, detail, I think, it can it makes difference. Somehow, one would say, "I'm tired to be online," but it also depends where you are. I'm extremely. I get like uh, um, dizzy uh, if I have to be um, in. Um, <clears throat> will not tell there. Uh, names in one video conference, video conferencing software, uh, and in another one I can spend uh, hours and hours, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's uh, there is not just one online. <laughs> I think it's it's very interesting because I certainly know during lockdown walking around here, I knew what um, platforms people were using. You, you know, so it wasn't just that I knew, OK, the kid next door is doing all her classes online. I knew she was doing them in Microsoft Teams, you know, and I and it was sort of almost like different football, uh, uh, football teams or something like I knew. Oh, they're stuck in Zoom all the time. They're doing much more with Skype. You know, they're on Microsoft Teams, you know, they're like in these different e-learning things. And I think you're totally right in that. It, it's sort of I think this, I certainly think talking to the students, just the whatever e-learning platforms are in place or the different video conferencing softwares that are there, the the things that maybe even the design aspects that the students didn't notice so much, they become very, very vivid, you know, yeah. over a long period of time. And it's very I think it's very important also to make um, students aware about this um, design issues and to see their peculiarities and to see their how their I don't know not the how their um, <clears throat> let's their functionality that in this software just maybe some small differences how in fact how dramatically they can affect something and uh, this is uh, somebody who is also te teaching new media design. Uh, it's uh, these are very essential things because I believe that so many things, um, so many decisions are made uh, on the level of interface design today, and they are uh, so <clears throat> for given to the uh, users to the public as if this is some you know almost some natural <laughs> phenomena like it is uh, because it is <laughs> like this but it is not and uh, yeah so uh, I'm talking about it because it's uh, very much affects my uh, teaching what I try to teach students that, in, that you should be extreme that you should if your interface design if if you're in the design, you should understand what power you have to uh, mm -hmm. make uh, 
your your small maybe some small decisions they can have a very big um, impact. I think on uh, how I build. I think like one of the interface decisions that has affected me the most personally is being able to turn down the volume on individual people on Zoom. <laughs> because we have with when we have my Irish family do Zooms, we have members who um, have hearing loss. And so they have a habit of yelling into the microphone. And in in one video conferencing platform, you're able to manually adjust the volume of different speakers. Mm -hmm. And that was such a bonus because it meant the people who were yelling, you could just turn it down instead of be saying to them, you don't have to shout, it's okay, we can hear you. And I think those sort of things you realize you would rather use that platform, even if the video isn't as good, simply because the volume makes for, the volume control makes for a nicer, a nicer sort of experience, you know? So these, I suppose students get to sort of see these things in a different way than they ever have before, because mm -hmm. so much of it has quickly been shifted in this direction. But imagine how we get used to such things um, um, very fast. And uh, uh, imagine um, next uh, some in next version of this software you're talking about, it's uh, taken away <laughs> or for whatever reason. Uh, what will you do? Will you demand it back? <laughs> will you accept it? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Or what is even the channel that you would try to demand it back? Like, how would you even think, oh, who do I write to or do I tweet at them? Like, how do you engage with the, the, the designers and things like that? Because we I think we all sort of feel at the mercy of all of these platforms at the moment. We don't feel like we have much of a stake mm -hmm. that we could change them or we could or, or we could have power within them. Yeah, that's why. When was it? In uh, 2013, I started this platform that which was called User Rights and suggested to people to, you know, really to pay attention to this uh, um, <clears throat> sometimes features, uh, sometimes uh, just comments or, uh, yeah, like copy and paste, for example, or what you said that you are... Uh, allowed to make volume up and down and to treat them as uh, in fact uh, um, not just as features uh, but as um, um, I don't know par parameters that uh, maybe you should uh, have uh, something to your word to say about <laughs> yeah and uh, to uh, yeah but this, these are maybe small details but uh, um, I think there should be situations that um, um, I think, no, uh, what I want to say that there should be a possibility to uh, discuss uh, um, such um, um, in, uh, innovations, such designs, um, and um, not just have things uh, re disappearing, appearing, reappearing, just because uh, uh, some developer somewhere decided. <laughs> I, it's it's interesting to me because I was looking at your work, False Memories, uh, which is on the Internet. Uh, and I was looking at it this morning and um, 
you know, for for anybody who's listening in, if you see the work, you see this this arrangement of different scroll bars. It it feels very much uh, like late 90s, early 2000 Internet, this inter world of the Internet Explorer 6, and it's emulated within this Windows 2000 uh, 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 emulation engine. So you're sort of you're also transported back into that entire world of of uh, early 2000s. But one of the things that struck me was um, in a text that you wrote about the work that you talked about nostalgia and this sort of nostalgia for that early version of the Internet. And I was wondering, do you think that there'll ever be a similar version of, related to what's happening now where people will make works I, I know there's theatre companies making works about Zoom now, you know, but it's very much based in this period. But can you imagine a period 10, 20 years from now where kids are making a sort of a weird Zoom net <laughs> art that that's sort of a nostalgia for 2020? Yeah, I can easily imagine, uh, though it's um, <clears throat> no, without though, I can easily um, imagine it. And uh, by the way, I spent... Uh, quite some time i think every day imagining things like this <laughs> because i all that i deal with uh, uh, the web's past already for so long time and i already seen how things uh, that uh, let's that when i started to uh, deal with web's past some things were new and now they are also past <laughs> So I remember how very well I have several generations already of applications of um, trends uh, um, of uh, social networks that became uh, past and there is already this nostalgic uh, reminiscence uh, about them and there is this net nostalgia also trend and all this. But things are getting more and more, so to say, hom uh, homogenized. Now you have to help me. Homogenized. But, but things are getting more and more homogenized and uh, sort of compressed. The past becomes one instead of being many pasts. And that's why, and also things are getting more and more, um, uh, or not things, the uh, users are getting more and more alienated from their computers. There are more and more things are delegated. Uh, so and plat platforms are making more and more decisions, so to say, by themselves. And that's why I sometimes think what will be like uh, most of people are now on the Instagram. And I can imagine that uh, uh, I can imagine that in some time in 10 years. Uh, yeah. And they're on Instagram. And for me, it is an environment that you can't almost not you can't do anything. <laughs> you are very restricted in anything. And then I start to think what should happen that people start to recall it <laughs> as something where everything was possible. And of course, I understand that uh, maybe that there will be a situation that people would say, oh, now, uh, oh, remember 2020, you could still post, post things yourself on Instagram. <laughs> or you could choose a filter yourself. <laughs> It's it's interesting because when I was when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, will we? Because nostalgia is a clear thing. It's not web nostalgia, mm -hmm. or you know, it's nostalgia. And I was wondering, would we have sort of 
platstalgia or platformstalgia, where it'll just be about the feeling of friendster or, you know, the, the feeling of like early Facebook, because mm -hmm. there's so little we can do with these platforms now. As you say, we have so little choices. Do you know yet? Like, the, you know, Zoom is still a... Um, a very rich emotional space, you know, for like people have found a way mm -hmm. to connect. I, I think, for example, like I recently watched a funeral, a live stream of a funeral mm -hmm. and and it was completely surreal. And I thought, wow, if you ever want to really think about how a platform is designed, you need to watch a wedding on it and a funeral on it because you watch something that's a really happy event and then you watch something that's a really sad event and every design decision that's been made about that platform is shoved in your face you, you know because during the funeral i was getting recommended next like up next like the algorithm was trying to serve me content to watch mm -hmm. and that felt really strange do, do you know what i mean to to to, to have that feeling yeah it's uh interesting i think what uh, happens uh, now with the platforms and uh, how artists are trying to experiment uh, with the uh, many windows that can, that are in front of you in one browser by the way i'm always very happy that all this happens inside the browser <laughs> it's uh, because i'm i want always uh, to work for the browser Actually, I still work as a net artist just to prolong the life of the browser. <laughs> I think that it's not uh, replaced by some whatever apps. Um, yeah, and uh, like recently there was very interesting theater production uh, from uh, Stadttheater Stuttgart and the uh, Polish uh, theater that happened um, in Zoom. And uh, it was, I think, a wonderful and uh, laborious uh, ex, um, <clears throat> experiment of uh, uh, eight uh, people in different countries, but uh, delivering a performance and uh, making a real, uh, uh, really convincing attempt to make it theatrical, to, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. bring print theater inside, yeah. But probably in some time, I can imagine there will be uh, on stage, there will, Zoom will be staged on the stage of real theater. So this remediation ex ex experiments for sure will uh, be very interesting because it will, the audience will be there for them mm -hmm. when everybody has uh, experience with it and will be able to recognize <laughs> I th I th it's interesting because like this idea of the remediatization of it is it's that that things are mediatized and then unmediatized and then remediatized because that sort of feels like how we're living right now, you know, with constant, constant, um, you know, constantly shifting between these different modes, whether it's your family and then you see somebody on Zoom and you have to decide, does that still feel as real as having seen them in person? You know, or, or does it feel different or emotionally? Is it still is it still possible to feel close? I, I'm curious because you talked you, you you sort of many times in the past and um, also in this text you wrote for False Memories, you talked about the fact that your professional life happens in two dimensions and you're sort of partly living in the archaeology of the, the web. I always think of you as being the web equivalent of somebody with like a brush going <laughs> digging pieces of pottery out of the side of a hill but you're also living now and 
as you said, you've also had this other this other sort of collision in that everything just moved online into this space. It's almost as if like the public life moved into the private space and online was the private space for you or your sort of dream space or something like that. And I'm just wondering, do you feel this? Can you do you feel it's going to change the way that you make art or is it too early to say or the way that you're thinking about their projects going forward? Is it changing that? I would not say that uh, right at this moment uh, <clears throat> I would uh, uh, my artistic strategies uh, would change. Um, there is a I am as uh, everybody else, of course. Also, the material has changed uh, very much. I got much more material because of uh, um, material for th for my thoughts about the internet because uh, uh, because of the very extensive uh, use of uh, video uh, conferencing and one of my actually uh, one of my <clears throat> intentions is uh, uh, one of my intentions and this is what I talked also in the beginning is uh, to uh, so to say to pull people out of one particular software and uh, that they don't uh, lend, uh, I, and I don't mean now any particular, but somehow it happens that your institution provides something to you or you just decide that uh, um, this particular thing is uh, <clears throat> the most comfortable or whatever, and you just, you are stuck there. <laughs> and this is how you can uh, like uh, also lose yourself or become uh, very much... Uh, um, restricted in what you um, see around or also how you communicate, how you work. Um, yeah, this is what, uh, at this moment, I think it's, uh, you know, like it's in general, for example, very important to talk about um, Google's monopoly and to destroy it. The same would be now very important to make about the um, software different softwares that try to become monopolists uh, in um, everything and not just uh, that one video conference software wants to take over but also this intention that everything should be inside exchanging documents chatting <laughs> editing video so this convergence is also something what um, i think also artists could be good to uh, raise their voice against. In the end of last semester, me and my student um, Tim Schmidt, we made a uh, show, uh, the end of semester show that we tried to address it. So we actually connected people through different <clears throat> video conferencing software. It was uh, Microsoft Teams, whereby Jitsi, Zoom, <laughs> like uh, uh, all together. So it sounds like it sounds like already this was my I suppose this was the last question I was going to ask in that um, I think about that text you wrote about the generations of net art uh, and these different generations. It sounds like there's already a shift to a new generation happening, the, the post COVID generation in terms of the art that the students are making. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I wonder. 
Yeah, and where is the COVID generation? If there is, you're talking about the. I, I don't know. I'm thinking. I'm thinking about you know you in the in the text where you talk about you know because po- it it seems like the internet art that's being made now we can't use the, the term post internet art doesn't make sense to use it anymore especially after the last year that we've been living. Yeah. So you mean every art art movement now should be post? <laughs> oh no no definitely no you want you want things to be pre or during you know? <laughs> then then it feels it feels more open but but it's just it's interesting you're talking about with your student Tim making these works that already are addressing these things that that work wouldn't have made sense in January in the same way yeah wouldn't even come to the this idea <laughs> at all yeah you're absolutely right. So I, I suppose my last question I just wanted to ask is, um, seeing as you already live a lot of your life online and, and you you are analyzing online living historically as well as presently, what do you have any advice or tips or things that you found particularly good for people who maybe are not used to being online this much, ways, ways to move forward or even just strategies? I think the the best uh, strategy would be to try to make your own homepage. <laughs> this okay. Is, and uh, it doesn't have to be very fancy and uh, uh, you can uh, just make it on a white background with blue underlined links <laughs> that just <laughs> link to somebody else. And uh, yeah, this is uh, something what you can do with the... Uh, after five minutes tutorial, <laughs> maybe, but uh, uh, suddenly you would have your own uh, little place on the internet and uh, you understand how much power you can get from it if you decide to make it, to grow it, <laughs> to, to make it bigger. <laughs> Well, I think that's a very positive and hopeful, hopeful way of being starting to farm our own little corner of the field, our own little corner of the garden. Thanks very much, Olia. And um, I, uh, sorry, let me say that again. Thanks very much, Olia, for talking to me this afternoon and, and letting us in on how things are going for you. Yeah, thank you, Jenny. I wish you a great semester online. That was a clip from Olia's Drummer Mom project, which is a series of YouTube videos where Olia films herself surfing the web as her son Yuri practices drums in the background. That's all from the Guaranteed podcast for this week. Thanks very much to Jonathan Burroughs, Paula Sheshonka and Olia Lialina for speaking with me. If you'd like to find out more about this week's guests or the activities of Campus Gegenwart, please check out our website at www.campusgegenwart.de. Until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening. Music